Well, while the kiddos are on their way out, just give you a little uh, information about kind of my upcoming preaching schedule so you can know where to be reading. And um, if you are an old time Grace Bible Church member, you will recall that seven years ago we started in the Gospel of Mark, and by God's providence, we ended up at the resurrection of Christ in the Gospel of Mark on Resurrection Sunday. I only get four shots at this. <clears throat> We've done Mark. Uh, we just finished John 16 about a month and a half ago. And so beginning in about the middle of January, we're going to take 12 messages to go through John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer. And it is really one of the seminal passages in all of the Bible on our assurance of salvation. And so that will be our theme. But in order to make this happen, what we're going to do is about in the middle of January, we'll finish up in the book of Leviticus on Sunday nights, and then we're going to make a run toward Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to preach through John 17, 18, 19, and 20, and we will arrive at the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. But to do that, we're going to preach Sunday morning, Sunday night. And so we're going to just saturate ourselves in the gospel of John for those uh, few months and it is going to be a delightful time if you have a hard time getting here on Sunday night because of circumstances outside your control please let us know and we'll try to get messages to you if that's what you need if you're not able to be online Um, if you're not able to get here on Sunday night because you ate too much ice cream after lunch on Sunday then get here on Sunday night and we'll get through the gospel of John and really that's going to be a a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience uh, for all of us. Well, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Generally at the beginning of a year or at the end of the year, however the, the calendar falls, I either do a single message or a series of messages that I've prayerfully considered as a shepherding need for our entire body as a whole. And historically, the bulletin is never right. And it's not right this time, and that's not Vanjie's fault, that's my fault, because I generally wait till the very last minute to make this decision, and I did uh, once again, so I'm going to do something different than's listed in your bulletin. Once in a while, many of you happen to mention a burden or a need to me or to someone around me or to one of our staff or elders, which I've learned is often the Lord's way of indicating that we should address that particular need, because it comes from many of you all at once, unbeknownst to one another. And I'm amazed how often that need is something fundamental, something vital, something simultaneously maybe obvious. And yet for many of you, there is a a hidden concern of feeling, a feeling of a failure or inadequacy in what you perceive as a very normal part of the Christian life. And that issue that we'd like to cover today very simply is prayer. Now, clearly, prayer is an endless topic of discussion from Scripture There are somewhere in the vicinity of 650 prayers in the Bible, so it would take a dozen years to preach through every one of them. One of the heroes of our faith, Dr. Jim Roscup, wrote his magnum opus called An Exposition of Prayer. It's a detailed Bible study of every prayer in the Bible. It's four volumes, two inches thick each, and it took him decades to complete. And so where do you start with prayer So when you're preaching on prayer, it's important to have a particular goal, a particular focus in mind, and I'll work my way toward that goal, and we'll get more focused here in a minute. 
But I do have a concern that I think it's possible to live our entire Christian lives thinking that someday we'll develop that vibrant prayer life that we've always dreamed of. That someday we'll have that prayer life that we perceive or at least imagine that others have. We'll have that vibrant prayer life that we read about in the heroes of our faith. Men like George Mueller who had 50,000 recorded answers to prayer. And we think, I'll I'll do that someday. And we're not doing the math. that If you start now, you're not going to make it. And it seems that at times we've defined a vibrant prayer life with a very narrow, very small definition, which sometimes feels unattainable. And here is the unattainable definition of a vibrant prayer life. That the truly spiritual and holy way to pray is to get up somewhere around 3 or 4 a.m., read your Bible for an hour or two, Then enter into a time of glorious prayer in which we praise the Lord, we confess our sins, we are thankful to the Lord, we make requests on our behalf and on the behalf of many, many others, we pray for hours at a time, and at the very end, as we're saying amen, a single tear trickles down our right eye. Now we've prayed. And that's a noble goal, and I wish that on every one of us. It's a delight to the Lord, but my concern is that if you aren't doing exactly that, or something near to that, then you give up as being a total failure in your prayer life. And then you hear a sermon on prayer, and what you get is about a week or two of guilt that helps you to pray, and basically then you go back to the way you were. But I understand, and certainly the Lord understands, that life has seasons, and even the year has seasons of ebb and flow, and real life doesn't often meet our fantasy expectations of what we wish our prayer life was like. We, we have, for example, many, many new babies in our congregation. And young moms and dads, maybe finally, I've kindly scraped out five minutes to sit down and I've opened my Bible and I have a cup of coffee. Oh, Lord, I'm going to be with you. And what happens? There goes the baby, right? We understand that. Many of you remember with fondness, Dr. Keith Essex, my advisor in my doctoral program, he's preached in this pulpit numbers of times. I first got to know him well when we were preparing to go on a short-term mission trip together. We had a team meeting a few months prior to the actual departure date, and this was shaping up to be a packed schedule. From the moment we got off the plane, we were going to be doing things. Every hour was accounted for. And someone on the team asked the question, I was the team leader, they asked me the question, how are we going to have an adequate time in the Word and in prayer while we're on this trip? They asked me the question, well, I had Dr. Keith Essex in the room, and I just went, why don't you answer that, Dr. Essex? And he surprised all of us. He said, basically, you have to front load some great time with the Lord before you leave and then be in an attitude of praying without ceasing. And he basically said, get your major praying done before we leave and then pray as you go. How wise and how practical. But it isn't just something intense like an overseas trip which creates a packed schedule. Most are busy about the busyness of life, doing good things, doing necessary things like working and sleeping and raising your family. And our calendars then, they become like like wolves trying to chase us down, trying to tear us apart. And we have to battle, we have to run from our calendar and we have to turn around occasionally and beat it down with a stick and tell it it that we're the boss. And so I'm very aware that for many of you, the idea of simply stopping for 30 minutes or for 60 minutes to really pray, I understand that can be daunting. 
Some of you have the time and the discipline to pray even for an hour or two every day, and I love that. And to you today, I say, great, do more and pray for everyone else. But my main audience today is all of you who inwardly say, I know my prayer life is lacking. I just don't know where to start, and I don't need guilt. I need help. So today, the title of my message is Pray Without Ceasing, A New Year's Resolution Worth Keeping. Now, my goal this morning is not to give you a comprehensive theology of prayer. It's not possible. It is not to induce guilt and shame as motivation to prayer. The Holy Spirit can do that without my help. And it's not even to convince you of the necessity and the joys and the importance of prayer. I honestly don't think you really should have to convince a true Christian about the benefits of prayer any more than a newborn baby needs to be convinced to take a breath. It is, it is absolutely a part of who we are. In fact, prayer was probably the first thing you did as a new believer. In any case, convincing you of the importance of prayer is not my goal this morning. If you don't think prayer is important, that is not a sanctification issue. That is a salvation issue. Because Christians know prayer is important because you want to communicate with God. So here's my goal this morning. Here's our focus. Very simply, I want to induce prayer. I want to embolden prayer in your life, specifically to give you encouragements concerning what it means to pray without ceasing, which of course leads us to our text this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. It's one of the rare times my sermon title is also the whole text, and I, I enjoy that efficiency. And my contention today that that is in fact a New Year's resolution worth keeping, I would say it's the only one worth keeping because it makes all the others pale in comparison. And most definitely, and we don't, we don't put this down at all, we definitely need our times of formally addressing the Lord, of coming before the Lord in very formal times of prayer where we begin by confessing sin, we begin by praising the Lord, we have times of supplication and thanksgiving But my focus this morning is not so much on that sort of formal addressing of the Lord, but I want to encourage you toward maybe adding to your definition of a successful prayer life. Not changing it, but just adding to it. Because my hope today is not to divide you among the church into those who are doing the prayer life well and those who are not, but to unite us as all of us being effective and more effective in our prayer lives. And so our text this morning really serves as a home base, our jumping off point to simply provide hope and encouragement to us. We'll use this short command just as our launch pad. Prayer is not to be seen as a chore. It's not to be seen as a task to be accomplished. If you're married, you understand this completely. Ladies, if you ask your husband, can we talk? And he rolls his eyes at you. That doesn't feel good, right? That's terrible. We, We should want to be together. There's definitely a discipline to prayer, but there should also be a a second nature flavor, a second nature atmosphere to prayer. And that's what I'd like to really hopefully generate some thoughts on this morning. So I I simply want to encourage you in three ways. I'm going to give you three encouragements concerning what it means to pray without ceasing. Very simple encouragements. Now, very often I like to save some of the most important theological implications of a text closer to the end of a message 
But I want to start with the most important concept up front because it resets your mind into a different way of thinking in a different direction than maybe you're used to. So here's the first encouragement concerning what it means to pray without ceasing, which is also a theological foundation for us. Here it is. The means is the end in prayer. The means is the end in prayer. Now, what's a means? A means is a method to a goal, a, a, a road to get somewhere, a pathway somewhere. The means is the end in prayer. We're going to take a moment to work our way to this. Prayer most definitely has outcomes. It has goals. God helps us. He comforts us. He answers our requests. He receives glory. Nobody has ever prayed, Lord, here I have these requests, but I really couldn't care less if you ever answer them. In fact, I'm not concerned about that at all. Of course we want the Lord to answer our prayers. Yes, there are goals. But in looking toward those ends, toward those goals of which prayer is the means, we can forget that prayer isn't just the the purpose of accomplishing some later goal prayer is not just the means prayer is also the end it is also the purpose now this is a game changer it is a life changer and i'll work our way to understanding that but let's let's understand our text here in this context first of all this little imperative this little command is just two words in greek and so we can pretty quickly analyze this and it's helpful to us the command to pray, this Greek word is by far the most common New Testament word for prayer, and it has a, a general meaning of speaking to God. We understand that. But this particular word also has a technical usage quite often in the New, in the New Testament of making a petition, of asking for something. And now, specific to the context of this command from the Apostle Paul here to the Thessalonians, it is primarily speaking of petition, of asking for something, of supplication, of making requests of the Lord. And we can see this very easily because there's two other types of prayers bookending this command. Look with me at verse 16, rejoice, and verse 18, give thanks. And so we have other types of prayers listed on either side, And so we have some freedom then to make application to prayers of petition in particular and to prayer in general. Now, we should note, by the way, that this sort of praying without ceasing is not somehow reserved for the super Christian, not somehow reserved for the upper echelon Christian. The verb is plural, meaning all of you pray without ceasing, everyone. And this should be very encouraging to you because it means you can It means you're capable of it. The Lord never issues a command for which he doesn't provide the power to obey that command. And so that's the type of prayer. Specifically, it is petition and generally it's just prayer in general. And this prayer is to be without ceasing. That's that's one verb in Greek. And in fact, it's in what's called the emphatic position, meaning that we would say this, without ceasing, pray. It's the focus. It is the crux of the issue. Without ceasing, it's a verb that means constantly, unceasingly, without stopping. This verb is only used four times in the New Testament, all of them by Paul and all of them concerning prayer. Romans 1.9, without ceasing, I remember you always in my prayers. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, constantly, same verb, mentioning you in our prayers. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly. A little side note, Three out of four uses of this term without ceasing concerning prayer speaks of Paul praying praying for the Thessalonian believers. How encouraging would that be? 
for them to hear three times that the Apostle Paul was praying for me, praying for me, praying for me without ceasing. This theme continued on into the early church fathers. This was a, a, a big deal in the teaching of prayer. Some of the early church fathers are recorded using this exact same Greek word concerning prayer. Ignatius, in his letter to the Ephesian church, he said, Pray without ceasing for the rest of mankind that they may be saved. Polycarp, to the Philippian church, wrote that widows should be about the business of interceding in prayer for others unceasingly in answer to a question about what are widows in the church supposed to do. And he said, pray without ceasing. And by the way, did you notice that this in our text here, the idea of unceasing prayer isn't alone? It's not mentioned in isolation. Did you notice the descriptors on either side of without ceasing? Verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. It's a triad here. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. All having to do with prayer. Now, to say without ceasing pray is somewhat figurative language. Why do we say somewhat? Well, it's somewhat figurative language because you can't literally be praying all the time. That, that would be overly literal. But it's also somewhat figurative because you can be in an attitude of prayer. You can be in a posture of prayer. You can be in a readiness for prayer. You can be in, in, in an ability to pray at all times. And the longer you've been in the Lord, the more your thoughts and your prayers ought to almost blur together. That you're in a constant state of addressing the Lord at any time. I've mentioned this before, but when I was a, a teenager, I had the privilege of being around for many, many hours, numbers of believers in Christ who had known the Lord for 70, 80, and 90 years. And talking to them, I didn't know the word dementia, but I thought maybe that's what was happening. But you know what I noticed with these believers who had walked with the Lord for decades? That they would be talking to me and then talking to the Lord and talking to me and talking to the Lord and sometimes not even knowing the difference. I remember having lunch with a 103-year-old woman by the name of Mrs. Leslie. And I didn't understand what was happening because she would ask me, are your potatoes cooked okay and do you like this? And Lord, thank you so much for the fact that we're having lunch today. Do you need some more bread? I have butter here on the table. And she just went back and forth. She was praying without ceasing. Why are we to, without ceasing, pray to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances. Well, verse 18 tells us the reason. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, because God commands it. This is not your pastor trying to sell you on the optional idea of praying without ceasing. This is your pastor telling you that this is a Greek imperative that says you will pray without ceasing if you belong to Christ. It is a command. And I take the command also of Titus chapter 2 that says to declare these things with all authority and let no one disregard you. I am telling you in 2020, you need to pray without ceasing. Amen? That is what we will be about. At the women's retreat this year, I did an entire message on Jesus' parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Great story. Jesus tells this story of a sinful judge who didn't fear God, he didn't respect man, had no compassion whatsoever. And this widow comes to him begging for justice against an adversary, somebody who was oppressing her. He kept refusing and she kept persisting and he finally relented and his reasoning was, 
the only way I'm going to get her off my back is to do what she wants. And here was the lesson. The lesson of this parable was if a sinful, self-centered, selfish man finally gives in under the persistence of one asking, how much more will God, who is pure and who is holy and who loves you and who loves your children and loves, loves you as his children and loves to hear your prayers, how much more will he hear you? It's a no-brainer. And so we don't give up on prayer requests. We keep praying. But here's our encouragement. We come back around to this. The means is the end in prayer. Now, why is this a game changer? Why is this a a life-changing idea? Why does this reset your mind when it comes to prayer? Well, because prayer becomes so much more natural. It flows more easily when prayer itself is what you're aiming for. That is immediately successful. Can can I put it this way? If your goal is save a million dollars, that's going to take a long time. If your goal is save a penny, I can do that now. Your goal is to pray. Yes, we make requests. Yes, we make petitions. But those are generally things we often have to wait upon and many of our petitions aren't answered until the next life. And we understand that in the sovereignty of God. But the impact of praying without ceasing as an end in itself is stunning. Because this means that your heart and your mind are shifted from the results of prayer to the process and the experience and the act of prayer itself. Can we take a cue from the wives among us for a moment? When it comes to a conversation between a husband and a wife, there's often a basic difference. And we can express this difference in the form of questions. Husbands tend to ask the question, what are we going to talk about? They're goal-oriented. This isn't bad, and this is often necessary to plan things in life. But wives tend to ask the question simply, are we going to talk? And it's not so much about the content as it is about the act of talking and bonding together. My wife will ask me, can we talk? And when I'm in my more stupid frame of mind, which is often, I ask the question, what are we going to talk about? Dumb, dumb, dumb. Don't do that. The right answer is yes. We'd love to talk. If we applied this to prayer, what does this mean? It means that if we see prayer not merely as a means to an end, but the end of itself, end in itself, this changes our view of prayer. You know what's going to happen? It's going to open you up to more frequent times of prayer. Because it's not just something you're using as a tool to accomplish a goal. It is the goal. It is the goal to address the Lord, not just a means to a goal. So our first encouragement concerning praying without ceasing, the means is the end in prayer. Let me give you a second encouragement. You are always welcome in prayer. You're always welcome in prayer. Now, you may believe that intellectually. In your mind, you may believe, and you may even quote, that uh, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. But in my time of ministry, I found that in practice, believers sometimes tend more to pick their moments when they think God is most receptive. Can I tell you this? That is a pagan way to think about God because that means I might manipulate God into hearing me a little bit more. Okay, five minutes ago, I just committed the most heinous sin I've done in a year. I think I'm going to give God a cooling off period for a couple days before I go to him about this. We think of him the way we think of our dads, right? I give him a little time to cool off. But that is how pagans think about their gods. 
I want to move outward from our home base of 1 Thessalonians 5 and have you turn with me to Psalm 32. And I want to prove to you that you are always welcome in prayer. And I'd like to do that by taking a tour of some of the prayers of King David. And we're going to label these prayers, these times of prayer, just to demonstrate that any time is the right time to pray. Any time is the right time. And we'll just label these. The first prayer we'll label... Pray when you've sinned. Pray when you've sinned. Psalm 32, verse 1. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then David exhorts us. In verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What does this mean? Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Basically, he says, while forgiveness is available. Now, for the believer in Christ, under the joy of the new covenant, for us as Christians, forgiveness is always available. But don't forget, don't miss the tone of verse 6. The tone is, don't wait. Don't wait. Come to the Lord for forgiveness. Come to the Lord for cleansing now. But, Pastor Steve, you don't understand. I committed this sin like 90 seconds ago. It is our instinct to wait, isn't it? But according to Psalm 32, don't wait. Our sin nature makes us lean toward waiting to come to the Lord. You know what David says to the one who is distancing himself from the Lord? Verse 9 Do not be, I didn't say it, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, here it is, or will not stay near you. Don't make God keep wrenching the reins to get you near him. You come to him. And what is God's promise to the believer who rushes to the Lord in confession? Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Lord, I sinned a minute ago, and I'm so sorry. I've surrounded you with my love. You're forgiven. Pray when you have sinned. Turn with me to Psalm 39. We could call this one, pray when you feel oppressed. When you feel oppressed, Psalm 39, verse 12, near the end. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Now, wait a minute here. This is a prayer that David prays because he's oppressed. But what does David identify? Who does David identify rather as the oppressor? Well, the first clue here in verse 12 is that he's asking the Lord to treat him as an honored guest, the Lord to be merciful to him. But we don't have to look for any more clues because he openly says who his oppressor is. Look with me at verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. You know this, by the way, David does not accuse God of doing anything wrong. He's just feeling burdened. He's feeling oppressed under the weight of the trial and the suffering that his sovereign, all-wise God is putting him under. Listen, it's one thing to be in a time of suffering and instinctively cry out to God. It is something else altogether when you sense that God is the one who is inflicting the suffering. 
now you can wrongly interpret that as feeling like God is putting distance between you and himself. No, no, no. David rightly says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. That yes, you're the one inflicting the, the difficulties and the pain and the trial and you're the one to whom I will hang on to and I will, I will grasp and I will not let go. You pray when you feel oppressed, even if it's by God himself. As a matter of fact, four times in other Psalms, David determines to, and this is not a word we use often to speak of spirituality, he determines to complain to the Lord. Psalm 55, 2, attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Have you ever moaned before God? This is what he says he's doing. Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. Apparently, complaining and moaning go together. Psalm 64, 1, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Psalm 142, verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Now, this Hebrew word translated complaint is fascinating. It means, basically, to take what you were thinking anyway and just say it out loud. Does that not acknowledge the all-knowing nature of God? To just take what was in your brain and say it anyway? And in fact, it also means to speak enthusiastically. To speak with vim and vigor and to just say it. It has the idea of musing of taking whatever is rattling around in your brain and just organizing it verbally to the Lord when you feel oppressed. Turn with me to Psalm 54. We will make an airtight case for you always being welcome in prayer. Pray when you've sinned. Pray when you feel oppressed. We'll call this one, pray when you feel betrayed. Pray when you feel betrayed. 1 Samuel 23. David is on the run from King Saul. He's taken refuge among the people of the Ziphites. And they told Saul he was there. Now, who were the Ziphites? They were people living in and around the town of Ziph, or Zeph, in the hill country of Judah, meaning they were of the same tribe, the same family as David. Because he's of the tribe of Judah, and so their betrayal was a double offense. What does betrayal do? It creates feelings of anger. It tempts you to vengeful thoughts, tempts you even to vengeful actions. The injustice of betrayal is a wound which can create a lifetime scar on your heart. And yet, what did David do? Psalm 54, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And you notice two things immediately. David requests vindication from God. And he goes immediately to prayer. And in his prayer, he does not remind God so much of the negative qualities of his oppressors, although that happens at times. He goes, more importantly, verse 4, to God's faithfulness. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And he takes the focus off the betrayer and places it upon the Lord. Next psalm over, Psalm 55. Pray when you've sinned, when you feel oppressed, when you feel betrayed. How about this one? Pray when you're terrified. Pray when you're terrified. I always appreciate when our members 
I get to speak with them. And when you're open and honest and transparent, and when you say, I'm, I'm going to have this surgery, and I'm, I'm scared. I trust the Lord, and I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm, I'm scared. We've already seen that twice in Psalm 55, David says he'll raise up his complaint to the Lord. Here it is. Psalm 55, verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. These are strong words. A plea for mercy because of anguish and terror and fear and trembling and horror. And David, he just wants to escape. Verse 6, And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. And speaking of betrayal, why is David so petrified? Because the danger to him has not come from outside the walls of his palace, it has come from his own people. Verse 12, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. This is someone that he used to worship with who is now threatening his life. Now, Psalm 55 certainly does express confidence in the Lord. Verse 16, I call to God and the Lord will save me but not before he'd expressed the panic of a terrified man. He's transparent. He's real. He's completely open-hearted before the Lord. He doesn't try to impress the Lord with fearlessness. He simply tells God, I am terrified. Have you ever tried to pray a theological prayer in order to impress God that you know didn't actually fool anybody? Lord, I know that you're sovereign. All right, translation. I sort of believe that at this moment, but I'm sort of having trouble with it because I'm terrified. Well, just pray that because that's what you're thinking anyway. Turn with me to Psalm 61. Pray when you've sinned, when you feel oppressed, when you feel betrayed, when you're terrified. How about this one? Pray when you're weak. Pray when you're weak. We absolutely have moments when we're bolstered and we have this sense of emotional and spiritual strength and our prayers are, are filled with glorious theology that we truly believe at that moment and we are emboldened and empowered to pray for ourselves and for others and we have spiritual strength and you, you feel as you could, you could go on and on and on in prayer. But sometimes you're depleted. Sometimes you're exhausted. Sometimes you're worn out. Sometimes this can be expressed by the common phrase, I can't take it anymore. And you want me to pray? I I can barely form a thought. But what does David do? Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. He says, I feel like I'm at the end of the earth. And how does he pray, or when does he pray? Rather, he prays when his heart is faint. It's a word that means weak, feeble, sickly. As a matter of fact, more specifically, this word is taken from a Hebrew root word, which means to cover over or to wrap. And it means to be wrapped in darkness. Particularly here in Psalm 61. That says it all, doesn't it? 
being wrapped in darkness, feeling that weight of oppression. I've talked to a lot of people and some of you, when you use the word depressed, I feel depressed and, and you describe it, it feels like something that's on you physically. It feels like the world looks different. It feels like you're looking through a filter of darkness at everything. Listen to his immediate focus on how strong God is, though. He feels like he's at the end of the earth, but he calls for God as his rock, as his refuge, as his strong tower. And did you notice this? He didn't pray for strength exactly. He just prays to be sheltered while he's weak. Verse 4 Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. He doesn't say, give me strength. He's saying, basically, I don't have any. Can I just get under yours? Turn with me to Psalm 86. Pray when you've sinned. Pray when you feel oppressed. Pray when you feel betrayed, when you're terrified, when you're weak. How about this one? Pray when you're humiliated. Pray when you are humiliated. Psalm 86 Beginning in verse 1, a prayer of David, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. David says he's poor. It's a word that means wretched and without resources. Apparently, he's at a time of being vulnerable or exposed in some way, and he says he is needy. This is a word that just means in want. And so he's given a double whammy here, two similar ways of expressing the same thing, that he's at a moment of having no options, no resources, no recourse, humanly speaking. He's out of options. David appeals to the Lord on the basis of one thing in verse 2. He says, for I am godly. I'm godly. David isn't claiming his own righteousness. He's not claiming inherent goodness as a reason God should help him in his moment of humiliation. He's simply saying he's loyal to God. As a matter of fact, the word godly here is the adjective form of the common Hebrew word chesed, which speaks of God's faithful love toward his people. And so David is saying, you demonstrate covenant love that's faithful toward me and I have returned that love. In fact, he says at the end of verse 2, you are my God. He's the only place that David would turn to. What's David doing? Well, he's appealing very simply to God to remind God, as it were, that David belongs to him. I'm yours. And when David is humiliated, then God stands with him and that he will do something about it. Turn to Psalm 141. Pray when you've sinned, when you feel oppressed, when you feel betrayed, when you're terrified, when you're weak, when you're humiliated. One more. Pray when you are tempted to speak and do evil. Pray when you're tempted to speak and do evil. Psalm 141, beginning in verse 1, the Psalm of David. Oh Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, very interestingly here to open this prayer, David is basically asking for his prayers to be magnified, to be multiplied. It's like going to the store and handing somebody a $5 bill and saying, could you count this as a 20? That's what he's doing. He says in verse two, let my prayer be as powerful as if I had gone to the holy place, offering the official incense of prayer in the temple, the very highest of all the prayers. 
He says, let the lifting of my hands be counted as the evening sacrifice, as the official sacrifice. By the way, almost 100% of the time in the Old Testament, the idea of lifting your hands in prayer is not a happy jumping around joy. It is lifting empty hands because you have a need for God to put something in it. It's very simple and very, very clear. And in this case, what is David's great need? Verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Instead of cherishing evil words and evil deeds when he's around those who do so, he cries out to God to close David's mouth and to guard his heart from wicked temptations. And did you notice the metaphor he uses for wicked words and deeds? Let me not eat of their delicacies. Because when you are under carnal temptation, wicked words and deeds look delicious, don't they? And so what does he pray for? To be turned away from the delicacies of sin. In verse 5, he says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In other words, Lord, on this side, guard my mouth and guard my heart. And now give me someone godly to smack me with a rebuke and with correction. Have you ever prayed that? I've seen it in action. Some of you have at times come to me and said, I know the right answer. I just need to hear you say it. Should I do this sin because I want to? No. And if you do, I'm going to bring 10 guys and we're going to pray with you after beating you within an inch of your life. Just kidding. Thank you, Pastor. I needed that. We need that. How wonderful it is to pray when you're tempted to speak and to do evil. Have I proven to you that you're always welcome to pray? Pray when you've sinned, when you feel oppressed, betrayed, terrified, weak, humiliated, even when you're tempted to speak and do evil. Look, if you're about to say something you're going to regret, at least just tell the Lord, this is what I would really like to say and let him deal with you. Listen, if we're commanded to pray without ceasing, could I say this? If you are commanded to pray without ceasing, the implication is very clear. God listens without ceasing. First encouragement The means is the end in prayer. Second encouragement, you are always welcome to prayer. Let's do one more. You can pray without ceasing starting now. You can pray without ceasing starting now. You begin with understanding just how normal prayer should be, that the means is the end in prayer, and that the 24-7 access you have to God is normal, and that you are always welcome in prayer. What this does is it sets you up to have an attitude of prayer at any time and now you can pray without ceasing starting now. That communication with God is easily initiated almost without thinking about it. At times you will find yourself automatically speaking with the Lord. Now let me show you what I mean. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5, you don't have to turn there, it's just a three-word phrase. I'd like to take a small liberty and substitute the phrase without ceasing with this phrase. Pray as an unavoidable habit. Pray as an unavoidable habit. And I have a case for making this substitution in extra-biblical literature. 
There's at least one example of this idea using exactly the same Greek word. In the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees, it's not scripture, it's written in the time between the Testaments, but it is helpful to us. 1 Maccabees 12, verse 11, the writer says, We therefore remember you constantly on every occasion, same Greek word, without ceasing, Here it is, both at our festivals and on other appropriate days, at the sacrifices that we offer and in our prayers, as it is right and proper to remember brothers. In other words, special occasions were trigger points to remind them to pray. It became an unavoidable habit. When I first started driving, one of my so-called friends said, Hey, did you know that in the school parking lot where you have all those speed bumps, that if you're going fast enough, you won't even feel them. And so I piled some kids into my car and we decided to demonstrate the truth of that. It's not true. It's not true. Not only did they not want to ride with me again, but I have a memory of replacing my muffler as well. Speed bumps are there for a reason. So to pray without ceasing, simply place some spiritual speed bumps, some unavoidable habits in your path which will trigger prayer. Let me give you some example speed bumps. We'll just use one word. Family. Family. When you gather with your family and not just with meal, for meals, take time to pray. If you did something fun, thank the Lord. If you're about to do something as a family, Pray. Why shouldn't all of your family gatherings have a moment of prayer? Why shouldn't they? Another speed bump here. Spouse, you're one flesh. You're one unit. You're living one life together. Why would you not pray together? I I don't say that to give you guilt if you're not praying together. I just say that start now. It's not hard. Just decide that every day we'll at least have a moment of prayer together. And no, it's not always going to be spectacular. I've fallen asleep while praying out loud with my wife. And that wouldn't be so bad, but the problem is, is after I'm asleep, I keep talking. And I've brought some ridiculous requests to the throne of grace. I'm the only person I know that has had to retract prayer requests because I was not, I was, I was not myself. But at least we were praying. How about this speed bump? Tasks. What task do you have that is beneath praying about that you're beneath or you're above rather praying for is there any task that you do which you might actually say i think the god of the universe can stay out of this one of course not you might not need particular supernatural help to wash a pan but you might need supernatural help to have a good attitude about it how about this one children Pray with your children, not just the family as a whole. Pray for their needs. Pray for their concerns. Let it be okay to be spontaneous about this. When your child comes to you and says, I have this blessing, I have this great thing that just happened to me. Take a moment and say, well, let's thank the Lord. How about this reminder or speed bump? Morning. Morning, decide before you go to sleep what your first conscious act is going to be. In our family, we will at times pray for our first thought to be, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, more often than not, we find the Lord faithful to that prayer that those words are gracing our minds even as we are awakening. Psalm 5 verse 3 says, In the morning you hear my voice. 
Why not let your first thoughts be in prayer? How about the word evening? Evening. Why would we ever want our minds anywhere else except in prayer as our final thoughts in the day? If you're trying to solve a problem, we all know how effective that is at midnight while you're laying in bed. That really works well, doesn't it? If you're worrying about something, you know how devastating that is to your night's rest. There has to be a point where you say the day is done. There's a point where you say, I commit this day and the next to the Lord and I clock out. How do you clock out? In prayer. Psalm 42.8, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. How about this speed bump? We'll call it project. Project. Do a prayer project with a start and an end point. This was over two decades ago, but in our family, this is still fresh in our memories because of how impactful it was. My dad, now gone home to be with the Lord, he committed to my wife, Sylvia, that he would pray for her. She was having some health issues. He committed to pray for her for 90 straight days every day on his walk, and he proved it by having a stack of little index cards, 90 of them, with different prayer requests on it. We never forgot that. That was his prayer project. How about this speed bump? Scripture. Scripture, instead of always separating the ideas of reading your Bible and prayer, take time to pray through a verse. Take time to pray through a psalm. I mean, they're handed to you here. Psalm 141, oh Lord, I call upon you. And Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Lord, I have some needs right now. Would you hasten to me? Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Lord, I'm so encouraged that David would be that bold in prayer. May I be that bold in prayer as well. Slow down. Let the text speak to you and you speak back to God from the text. How about this key word or this speed bump? Sermons. Rather than just going on autopilot and hoping that the preacher can keep your attention, you decide to maintain an attitude of prayer even as you are listening, to ask God for insight, to ask God for conviction, for growth, for an open heart, for a sharp mind. Listen. Our, our culture has now created mush for brains. We can't pay attention to anything. That's why you can see on your phones or on your iPads commercials. They're literally now three seconds long because we can't pay attention to anything else. And so to listen to some guy standing behind a wooden box with an open book speaking for an hour is hard for us. So you come engaged in prayer When the preacher says, open your Bibles too, that is when it's time to engage and to pray. Lord, help me now. I want to engage with this. I want to hear every word. I want to hear every concept. I want to apply this. I want to be more like Christ. Help me now. There are endless possibilities for unceasing prayer if you'll simply place some speed bumps in your daily path to keep you in prayer. That's why you can pray without ceasing starting now. I want to end our time this morning with a caution. The invitation to pray without ceasing, this is free access to the courts of heaven, but here's the caution. This is not a general invitation for everyone. This is not a general invitation to humanity to pray. This access to the Lord is only for those for whom the admission price has been paid, and the admission price is death. The wages of sin is death. Your access had to be purchased You had to receive by faith the payment for your sin given by Christ made on the cross. You had to repent. You had to get on your face before God. You had to acknowledge your need of a Savior that you needed to have your sins forgiven. 
Because for the one who will not bend his knee to Christ, the door to heaven is slammed shut. And there is no provision for you. There is no blessing for you. There is no answer to prayer for you. Except in the form of perhaps his general grace to the world that everyone gets air and food and water. There's only one prayer that God wants to hear from the unbeliever and that is the prayer of a broken and contrite heart who is humbly confessing that you have offended God deeply with your sin and you're asking for mercy from Jesus Christ. And if you will humble yourself and if you will come to Christ by faith in Him, believing that He died and that He rose again, then you become a child of the living God. God gives you a new heart and the doors to the throne room of Christ are now thrown open and the red carpet is rolled out for you and God the Father says, come on in anytime. Your first breath of heaven is the gospel of Christ and your first breath toward heaven is your prayers. And it's natural and it's open. The glorious promises of, open, of answered prayer, though, are only for those who belong to Christ. And I pray that you do belong to Him today. If you're not His, and especially if you've been fooling yourself or others, then don't let your pride or your embarrassment send you to hell. I have no dread of heaven whatsoever, but from a human standpoint, there is one thing I don't want to hear in heaven. The list of members of Grace Bible Church who were frauds and went to hell. I hope that list is zero. And so what do we do instead? Repent and believe the gospel. Well, tonight we have an opportunity to pray. We have a prayer service this evening. This is a unique opportunity to speak corporately to the Lord. And here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to pray through the Great Commission. I'm going to pray through the Great Commission. We're going to acknowledge the authority of Christ over His church. We're going to ask for faithfulness to make disciples. We're going to ask for faithfulness in the church. We're going to ask for spiritual maturity and growth in Christ-likeness. And we're going to thank God for His continual presence through Christ as we humbly obey Him. Can I say this? If the thought of praying corporately with the church of Jesus Christ bores you, you're not a Christian. I'm not making any bones about it. You're just not. The thought of praying with God's people is thrilling and it's exciting and I hope that you will join us tonight with that. Can you pray without ceasing? You can. And you can start today. Amen? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for the delights of the Word of God. We saw in the Psalms the prayer of David to Uh, begging you to keep him from what he called the delicacies of sin. Well, we have something better. We have the delicacies of your word. And we open it, and on any given page, a veritable feast of truth and help and hope and contentment and the attributes of God and the worthiness of Christ and the glories of our salvation and the future we have in heaven and the joys of the church, it all comes to us in three dimensions in delight and joy. Lord, I pray for each one of our members and those with us as guests today, Lord, who know Christ. Lord, we want to pray. I doubt there's a lack of desire, but I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those more so than ever in 2020 who would pray without ceasing. 
And while prayer is the end in itself, we do pray for results. We do pray also for answered prayer. We pray for you to be honored and glorified as we can point to answer after answer to, to uh, wonderful providential workings that we see by your glorious hand day after day. Might we be faithful in prayer and as a church going into 2020, might we be faithful in prayer for the lost and might we see the lost saved, Lord, because that would bring so much honor and glory to Christ and we pray confidently that that is his will then and it is in Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen.